So a wonderful way to read the Bible is to just notice that people don't write something for no reason, typically. I mean, I guess there's always an exception to every rule. Somebody could be doodling or something for no reason. But typically, when we write things, we write things for a reason. And Mark is writing as an evangelist. He is trying to help people see the story of Jesus and to understand who Jesus is uh, so that they would place their confidence in him and follow him. In our passage this morning, it, it seems like Mark, the evangelist, is trying to say something like, it seems really hard to be neutral about Jesus. That on the one hand, you have the chief priests trying to kill him. And had we read a couple more verses uh, after our paragraph this morning, we would have seen that Judas was plotting to conspire with them against Jesus. And then you have this amazing woman anointing him with this costly perfume. And it seems as if Mark puts those two things before us in stark contrast on purpose. Like, well, like what do we actually think about this? And Tom writes a little short commentary on Mark. He describes a painting that I had not seen before in which this devoted woman is depicted in between the chief priests on the one hand and Judas on the other. The artist is simply trying to say, you know, like, what do we think about this? And he puts this amazing woman beautifully set in the middle of this painting, the artist and Mark basically saying to us, this woman got it right. That what you see this woman doing is the kind of non-neutral thing to do. It's, it's, it's the positive way of deciding who Jesus is. I'm sure you all would have heard this at one point or another, but as I was thinking about this this week, I, I thought of this famous quote from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, where he says, what I'm trying to do here in this section of the book is to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And that is, I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I can't accept his claim to be God. And Lewis writes, that's the one thing we must not say. For a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Lewis writes, you can shut Jesus up for a fool, or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But he said, let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being merely a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Jesus himself intended to bring us to a place where we could see clearly and make a decision. Well, in our passage this morning, both the religious leaders and this woman both decided. And so as we read, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. But this woman comes forth with an alabaster flask of ointment, a very costly pure nard, which she pours out over Jesus' head. And Jesus says of this, she has done a beautiful thing to me. But if you look at your passage, it says that uh, the ESV has others scolded her. And, of course, they're scolding precisely about the cost, about the waste, what they saw as waste. 
And that word scolded in Greek is just a really lovely word. It means kind of a snorting, scowling disapproval. It is a very powerful word. It's a kind of violent displeasure that they had at what she did. And Peterson characteristically gets this really great in the message where he has him saying that they swelled up in anger, nearly bursting with indignation over her. So now think of the, justif- the, the juxtaposition again of the chief priests trying to find a way to put Jesus to death, Judas who's about to conspire with them, and this woman in the middle. And now hear Jesus say, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing to me. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And this has, of course, come to pass. Here we are this morning, talking about her 2,000 years later. And in fact, she has been talked about nonstop everywhere on the globe for 2,000 years. Well, why? I think first, her pure devotion. What she's doing here is honoring Jesus. She's giving the kind of full allegiance that I think Mark was hoping for as he wrote this gospel. In her is something uncalculating. Can you feel that? I mean, I, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one in the room who sometimes, like, over the years have calculated my devotion to Jesus. Well, what might someone else think if I do this? Calculating. Well, what might this cost me in some way? Reputation, money, whatever. It's calculating. And what I love, one of the many things I love about this woman is that it's uncalculating, it's It's an enthusiastic kind of dedication and loyalty that I think, again, Mark's just going, yeah, that's it. And then I see in her a guilelessness. There's something really innocent about what she's doing here. There's no deception. It's open and genuine and simple. It's trustful and trusting. A really beautiful guilelessness to me. And then, of course, the thing that the passage, you know, sets up sort of like a diamond, you know, against a black velvet, you know, kind of background. What the passage itself shows is the generosity. I mean, again, we we don't have time to go into it, but the cost just sits right at the heart of this passage in a huge way because it's the cost, it's the lavishness of it that makes it such a dramatic gesture. But for her, it's the spontaneous overflow of her heart. Now, so just think with me, Jesus said, Out of the good stored up in them, the human being like overflows and out of the bad stuff stored up in them, so also does a human being overflow. Now just try to picture the spontaneous expression of this woman's heart. Her gift was this amazing expression of love and it was a love that possessed a deeper significance than she could have ever possibly understood. And as I sat with that thought this week, I I thought of a couple weeks ago with the widow's mite and how Jesus saw that as priceless and how Jesus sees this woman and her actions as priceless. And I had this very lovely thought. I thought, what if the little obediences, the little moments of pure love that I might manage, what if Jesus sees those as priceless too? Think about that. 
What if the little widow's mites that you bring to him when you think, you know, I, I, I think I should pray tonight, and then you think, but I don't really feel like it, and somehow you do it anyway. What if Jesus finds that priceless? What if that's not a source for religious guilt and shame where you think, I, I shouldn't even have had that thought that I feel a little tired to pray tonight? What if it's the exact opposite? What if Jesus sees those little moments where we draw our hearts to a clear intention and, and we do what we see to be the right to do? What if, even though it feels to us like just a little widow's mind, Jesus sees it as priceless? Or even something that feels lavish to us? That what if our little movements towards him don't so much say something about us as they do about what he sees them to be. So all summer long, uh, and now into the fall in our ordinary time, in these readings in Mark, we've been working with this notion of follow me, question mark. And this passage, as I said, puts it just starkly right before us. The religious leaders on the one hand, the woman on the other. And the notion is, I think Mark is trying to help us see that life really only has two roads, and we're already on one of them. And again, in these stark terms, he puts it forward as kill him or anoint him as Lord of life. And of course, Mark is not saying anything more here than Jesus would have said himself when Jesus talked in terms like, well, your house will either be built on the rock or it'll be built on sand. Jesus wondered about, well, what is the pearl of great price to you? What is the treasure buried in the field to you? It's Jesus who talked in these terms of light and dark and sheep and goats and wheat and tares, these kind of two roads, these two ways of being in the world. And if we were to go back to Lewis for a moment in a further passage in Mere Christianity, Lewis sees this as that there must be a real giving up of the self. Lewis says, give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death. Death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day. And the death of your whole body at the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you'll find eternal life. Keep back nothing. For nothing that you've not given away will truly be yours. And nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and in the long run you'll find only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with everything else thrown in. And so what Mark and Jesus and Lewis are kind of putting before our imaginations, I think, this morning is the notion of a total abandonment to God. And I think we just have to maybe wonder, does this seem too lavish? Like if we think of total abandonment to God, do we maybe find ourselves slipping in to the bystanders wondering about the woman's perfume, and is this too lavish of a thing? And I've said, I think, a couple times over the last month that I'm just, you know, keeping it real with you as I would want to do. I'm a little surprised how coming to this stage in my life in early 60s and facing, you know, different futures, that this needs to be thought about over and over again. Things where I thought I kind of had this down you know, life throws you little curveballs and you realize, I don't maybe actually have this down. And it just, some, sometimes I can feel in my 
inner being, the kind of crazy, young recklessness that Debbie and I had in our early 20s to just kind of do anything, go anywhere for God. And now it just seems like I know too much. Are you feeling me? I've seen it all. And I feel like I've lived like four lifetimes. I mean, I've pretty much seen anything that there is to be seen in the church, religious, sort of Christian world. And it just can introduce a little bit of calculating. Are you feeling me? And I don't mean to say that being thoughtful is wrong, of course. That's not what I mean. I mean the kind of calculating that maybe holds back this kind of abandonment to God that Jesus and Mark and and Lewis are seeing. There's an old illustration that uh, always helps me kind of see this in in an evocative way. It's an illustration rooted in the cosmos. So uh, if the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles, if analogously that was the thickness of a piece of paper, well, then the diameter of our galaxy would be stacks of papers 310 miles high. And our galaxy is less than a speck of dust in the part of the universe that we can see. And that part of the universe might actually just be a speck of dust compared to all the universe. And if Jesus is the Son of God who holds this all together with the word of his power, is this the kind of person you invite into your life to be your personal assistant? Like, you know, would you help me with my career? Would you help me with school? I got some big tests coming up, you know, or... You know, that, that kind of thing that we all do. And again, there's sort of a charmingness to that, and it's fine, but I think you get the point here that, again, Mark wants us to see in our mind as clearly as we can through the eyes of this amazing woman the worth of Jesus and to feel in our own souls her uncalculated spontaneity, the depth of her devotion, like the utter commitment that this story stands at the middle of 2,000 years of human history. There are Christians who know this lady, I'm sorry, there are non-Christians who know this lady. There are people in other world religions who know this lady. She is a towering figure in sort of the last 2,000 years of religious human history. Well, again, why? It's, it's something about clarity. So again, I don't know how these things happen. Again, I'm just keeping it real. This week, as I sat with this passage, for some reason, I had a bunch of flashbacks to being a 19-year-old kid and going to what was then Calvary Chapel, Riverside, you know, what's now Harvest, you know, Greg, and just kind of sitting there every Sunday night and getting to the end of a message. And, you know, Greg, of course, was calling people to salvation for the first time. And as I started having these flashbacks and wondering, well, what might be in my life now that I've lived most of my life in Christ that might make me reluctant to make Jesus central to my life today? And I started thinking, well, excuses. I just started having these flashbacks of, of Greg, you know, oh, let the dead bury their dead, you know. That's when Greg had long blonde hair. He could afford to say that. Now that he's old and bald, you know, he, maybe he's a little more cautious. But back in the day, let the dead bury their dead, you know, no excuses. Or maybe it's fear of the unknown. I think that's maybe a, a bit of it for me these days. And as I thought about that this week, I I spent some time sitting with the spiritual discipline of sacrifice and just wondering how that might play into this, at least for me. The discipline of sacrifice, if you've not thought much about it, 
Is the deliberate forsaking of our security or the satisfying of our needs with our own resources and to rather sit with those in the light of faith and hope that God will sustain us? So the discipline of sacrifice is to deliberately forsake kind of securing myself and satisfying my own needs and to rather sit with them present to God given the resources that he has and us then having faith and hope that God would sustain us. Or I thought maybe it's disoriented, disordered priorities or disordered desires for something else that maybe would keep me back at this point in my life. And I, th- I thought of Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And then I thought of that really stark sentence from Jesus. What good would it be for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit that created self? Are you hearing me? Like, what if you really are fearfully, wonderfully made? And what if God really did know you before you were knitted together in your mother's womb? Now hear Jesus wonder, who would give that up? Who would give up your creatureliness, your createdness? Like, even if you gained the whole world, Jesus is wondering, like, really, you would do that to forfeit your Psalm 139 self? Again, it's just meant to evocatively draw us to a place of decision. And as I started thinking about that, that's why I think I started having these flashbacks. Again, I can just hear Greg in my mind every Sunday night. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, right? In a moment, I'm gonna ask you to get up out of your seats and come down and, you know. But if you deny me before men, I'll also deny you before my Father who is in heaven. And all week, I've sat with this notion that I wanna commend to you. That what if the work of deciding is not just a first evangelistic moment, But what if the work of deciding, the kind of deciding that Jesus is talking about when he uses those polarities of sheep and goat and light and dark and wheat and tares, or the beautiful image, I wish I could show you the piece of art that uh, the artist puts before us with the chief priests and Judas and this amazing woman at the middle. What if that deciding is actually fundamental to our formation and not just our conversion? What if it's lifelong? What if it's meant to be a moment-by-moment part of our seeking formation in Christ? What if it's meant to be a journey in which we never have it all together, but we do feel it coming together little by little? Okay, I want you to try to feel this with me. Like, we, we, we have this utter devotion, but we know we never have it all together, yet we do have this rich experience that it is coming together little by little, And as it comes together, little by little, in widow's mites, Jesus loves it. And when we have mountaintop experiences of clarity like this woman, and we're lavish in our devotion to Jesus, it's priceless to him. You know, in there's a, a lovely passage in Pilgrim's Progress where Bunyan has the pilgrim saying, It's always hard to see the purpose in wilderness wanderings until they're over. But he says, this hill, though high, I yearn to ascend it. The difficulty will not offend me, 
for I perceive the way of life lies here. Come, pluck up, take heart. Let us neither faint nor fear. And as I sat with this this week, I just realized, as I think I said last week, that I can just reflect back now. As a teenager, this meant one thing to me. In my 20s and you know, college and graduate school and all that, it meant another thing. 30s and raising kids, it you know, was another thing. And you can just sort of track your own life. And I think you'll come to see with me that this business of deciding for Jesus, deciding to follow him, it includes a moment of conversion which is simply Latin for a first step. It includes a moment of conversion, but it can never be reduced to it. That we all have daily these little moments where we decide what our answer is to that question mark. Yes, Lord, I will follow you.